Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Hey, real talk? Which race has the hottest teeth? When will the Empire take on the elves? And is the Black Knight a white savior? Well, at least he's not a gray... Well, you know. P- Pilgrim. Tariq. Uh, I'm talking about Tariq. I'll be honest, Chancellor. Revenge is the motivation for over half the decrees I've made. Dread Empress Sanguinia II. Best known for outlawing cats and being taller than her. If she had the best interests of the Empire in mind, though, she would have outlawed Cat. Am I right? (laughs) I suppose you're not wrong. That said, I'm pretty on board with her decrees, if we're being honest. A lot of my self-worth is tied up in being taller than mostly you. So in this chapter, we get uh, a few things going on. We start off with... Um, Kat and Nock hanging out, chatting a little bit, just becoming best friends briefly. And that transitions into a little bit of an interrogation scene with the captured officer from the end of the last chapter. Um, Interrogation being a kind word for what's going on because Kat and Hawker get a little brutal here. The Interrogation is used to get uh, a little bit of information to plan Kat's next few steps here, followed by a followed by an assault on a prisoner camp uh, in order to free a few extra soldiers and some mages to help Kat out. Well, to help, I guess, all of Rat Company out in their big plan to win the the war games as the plucky underdogs up against the evil and mighty Hellhound. Did they rescue any? mages in particular in that rescue or just you nope. know a bunch nobody of impo- nobody important okay. yeah just nameless mooks who can throw fireballs and uh the chapter ends with a loose plan to begin the assault uh as far as the actual games go the main thing here is just the the freeing of the prisoners um but obviously a lot more happens than just that in terms of characters and world building and you know the fun things we begin with the well i wanted to say a synonym but may she never return so with the victorious return to camp which we enter from an interesting perspective knock was napping when we got back to camp first words of the first words of the chapter resting lazily under a tree one of his legionaries kicked him in the ribs when the war party passed by the sentries this is i recognize these are kids at a war game don't get me wrong but kicking an injured orc while he's down while you're in a relatively successfully imitation of a life and death struggle this just passes by without any acknowledgement Catherine raises an eyebrow, and that's that. Full kick. You know, uh, hey, how's it going, big guy? Or more accurately, hey, stop sleeping. We just did a battle. You should be awake, too. You know, a friendly kick. In Amadeus' own legions? All I'm saying is there's a reason we don't hear about this girl anymore and why Nock is with us until the very end of the book, happy and healthy the entire way. That is 
those are both true statements, and I don't know why you were so specific about it. It's just, you know, the case. It's just how things work. But speaking of Nock, and uh, just speaking of Nock, I suppose, Cat, he's he's very injured. Broken leg, I believe, struggling to stand, and needs a little help to get to the um, interrogation that's coming. So Cat crouches next to him and gives him a hand standing. And s- a handstand? She gives him a handstand. And uh, as she does this, we get the line, knees almost buckling under the weight of him as I bore the other lieutenant's mass. I know she's kind of in a weird place with her name and is sort of in this, eh, is my name going to fully work anytime soon? Am I just in this like half name situation? But like, get with it. Where's that? Where's that name strength? Where's the where's the throw enemies around strength? Can't lift one orc. Come on, cat. Stop picking on her. She's all of two feet tall trying to lift a 12 foot orc. It's hard. OK. All right. That's fair. I realize this isn't quite the time for deicide, but I do have to note a lot of the feedback we've gotten on the show is that we pick on Cat a little more than some people think it's just. And I need to make the point, it's more than she deserves. Cat is the best. We pick on her because she's our friend, you know? You pick on your friends, we pick on Cat. Simple as that. Speaking of picking on, or picking at, perhaps, she questions why Nock is so heavy. What could he possibly eat to get so big and he smiles and responds whatever was lying around at the time and i think we can read into this a little bit by what lying around he clearly means lying in the sense of in repose he's he eats bodies he's an orc it it makes sense you eat enough people then you weigh as much as multiple people it's math you are what you eat exactly and so he's a person He's a number of persons. Good for him. Our dear listeners, not good for you. In this week's unsolicited advice, don't eat people. There's something that happens with protein, and then you die. But I never took biology, so ask me no further questions. But, sort of like elves as an example, it's pretty okay to eat meat as long as you're ethically on board with that. Just not not people. Not people meat. That's the That's the line. What about elf meat? You know, that's a great question. Maybe. I'm not sure if it's actually a great question. If I find an elf, I'll let you know. And that's just the thing. Catherine suggests he eats a salad because they're slimming, which is an interesting comment in a medieval society, just because slimming being particularly lauded or even acknowledged as a trait of food, that feels like part of the toxic diet culture we live in. But when she suggests a salad, the orc replies, do I look like a bloody elf to you? I might as well lick bark and frolic in meadows while I'm at it. What does he think elves are? I, licking bark is <laughs> licking bark is such an interesting way to get your your nutrition. But I mean, if it works for the elves, cinnamon. oh, that's what he thinks. Elves just love cinnamon. They because of all the baking. But but speaking of elves and eating, uh. Nock mentions something about the conquest, mentions the plan to eventually eating elves as part of uh, going to war with them, which, first of all, Nock... Wait, no, no. Yeah, exactly. Nock, ease up, buddy. It, Black is great. The Legions of Terror are great. But come on, let's let's keep it realistic. But he follows that up by saying, my grandmother got a bite of an elf, to be clear, during the conquest, said it was more tender than lamb. I have to say, that sounds very unlikely. A random orc, no offense, Nock, but getting a bite of elf? I just, I don't think so. I cannot envision a situation where that would take place. You know, your grandparents telling stories about the war that's that are obviously exaggerated, sure. But biting an elf? Let's keep it in the realm of possibility here. Has an elf died on this continent in the past end of sentence? It's a good question. I don't know that we know enough about elf society to know if they ever kill each other. They just kill each other slowly. I'm sure they can just repopulate, right? Oof. Sorry. Sorry. Though other people can repopulate, which is great after that horrible Black Knight slaughtered so many people in this land. What a monster. What an atrocity. 
He is simply the worst. But obviously, don't let Greenskins hear you say that, according to Nock. There's a, a bit of a, a, a love of the Black Knight from them. He's pretty important, the whole unifying, bringing them into the, the Empire and giving them a purpose, yada, yada, yada. We'll get to that. But in leading into that, when he's, when he's warning Kat against saying bad things about him in front of orcs, he says, you might have an axe to grind, and that's your own business. And I absolutely adore the, I don't know, the dramatic irony here of <laughs> Kat's relationship with the Black Knight and knock like uh oh, you know you and the, whatever you think about the black knight is your own business but that's not cat's <laughs> cat is the squire and it's 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 very cute black knight the conquest isn't even really comfortably set away in history much less the black knight who is still the same age and the same power as in those glory years but the beatification the Hagiographic perceptions of the man are intense. Nock says he raised us up, Callo. Okay. He ended the wars between the clans. Okay. And told us that we could be more. Okay. That even if we were born in a hut, we could still become generals. Great. Yeah. And lords. Mm. Okay. Um, the goblins get there first, actually. I, I love the trajectory. I love the enthusiasm. And you know what? If Black had his way, yeah, they would be equal to the lords because of the abolition of lordship. But they, this is not what I'm sorry, but it is no. It's a it, that's an aspiration for sure. There's there's <laughs> most of the the promises are met. The promise of lords of lordship. I mean, the same thing could be said to any human in praise. You know, you could be a lord one day in theory. It's there. The opportunity's there. It's just there aren't that many lords, and also the lords have a ton of power. And based on what we've seen, the lords also have not a monopoly, but definitely more than their fair share of magical talent and skill and training, which feels like it kind of leans things in their direction a little bit as far as it goes, as far as holding on to power goes. Are you proposing that universally armed authority? is thus enabled to abuse that authority? I would never argue with that. Said, Cat probably made a mistake bad-mouthing Black oh, yeah. in front of Nock. Oh, sure. She tries to <laughs> back this up a little bit. and I was just asking. I, I, I've got nothing against him, she says. Uh, liar. Like, yeah, she does. She's working with him. He's her mentor, sure. She's got a lot against him. And then she goes on to add another layer to this and says even met him once oh good sure a cover story here a little bit of a uh a, a new angle to add to this and she says i was around when he had governor mazes hung is it just me or is that a really weird moment to pick having met black in a public appearance where he sort of was just there and then left as far as we know in where he's functioning at a very high level, like I am here as the hand of the <laughs> of the Dread Empress and all of that. Not a, oh, you know, my parents were in the legions in Callow or what, whatever, any number of things. No, no, no. I was there for the hanging of a governor and met the Black Knight at this event. Just feels like a weird choice of, of moments to pick. Well, it's really important to her development. She's getting better at lying while saying the truth. And Black would be proud of this for some reason. Yeah, it, it, she's working on it. She's getting there. But uh, uh, speaking of things that <laughs> Black would be proud of, uh, Kat is thinking a little bit uh, about when she mentions the governor being hanged. Nock seems to have enjoyed that. And Kat is taken aback at first and then thinks... That was another pattern I'd noticed. Most of the cadets hated the nobility. Otter? Otter? Ater? What are you going with on that one? It's a very French city, right? Ate. Okay. I'm kidding. I'm going with Otter. All right. That's where I was leaning. Okay. So if you want to uh, put in proper meats and it's Ater. I'll probably stick with Otter. Otter? Otter. 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 I'm sticking with Otter. It, it's a 
clam eating, hand holding, right. water carnivore, right? Mammal. Most of the cadets hated the nobility in Otter with a vengeance, and she's she kind of had to arrive. Cat, yeah, cadets are probably mostly drawn from at, at this officer school, low nobility slash just regular people. Of course, they hate the nobles. That's how it works. That's how everything has always worked. The people who are causing all the problems at the top, who are wealthy while you aren't, yeah, people hate them. <laughs> I mean, especially the orcs, given exactly what Nock was just talking about. Her her thinking through of this is just an interesting, especially coming from an orphan. She grew up hating the nobles of praise. Like, she knows what this is. She She should understand this instantly. For her, it is a nationalistic thing. Sure, but... I mean, still. She knows that even Black, the people, the person who invented the Legions of Terror, has had at least some strained run-ins with the nobility in the past. In fact, she met him once at one. A very special event, yes. And she kind of follows us through to recognizing something that makes a lot of sense, given, given this other context, that the Legions of Terror and the nobles hate each other. Makes some level of sense. One is led by Black, is made up of people who are, relatively speaking, poor. The other is nobles. And then Kat has a, a thought. She thinks, why did Black have Mesus executed? Wouldn't that make things worse between them? Yeah, it would probably. But Kat, I'm pretty sure that's the point. She asks, the, my wayward teacher must have had a plan in mind, I guess. Yeah, the plan was to <laughs> to make things worse between them. I... I Black doesn't want the nobles to, <laughs> to have power, and having having that conflict there is only going to be beneficial since he's in control of the legions pretty directly. I don't know this. I feel like the Black is somebody who obviously deals in layers and all sorts of schemes and everything, but I feel like this one's pretty simple. I feel like this one's pretty straightforward and direct. But what if it causes a civil war? Then there might not be an empire. Yeah, that's that's. This is, dear listeners who are not actually currently reading the story with us, Cat's worry and fear that the empire might fall. Right, and Catherine, I promise you, there have been so many Pracy civil wars already, and it's still around. It's still doing fine, ish. You know, actually, it's doing very fine right now. But it's 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 okay. A civil war will not destroy the Dread Empire. The end of the continent, the imminent end of all life on the continent, doesn't even destroy Prace. Though it does take out the Empire, I promise you, Prace was and will still be Prace, just post-Wonder. I mean, after the fall of the Empire, the floating fortresses come back. Like, it returns to old form, even without its form. It will be fine. Lots of people will die, thereby evidencing it will be fine. Oh, I was gonna say, so you mean they're, you know, living normal life in praise. Wrong verb, but yeah, they're sure going through the normal cycles of Pratian life. Speaking of Pracy life, uh, Pratian, please. Pratian, sorry. We get a little bit of uh, introduction to the, the prisoner, who's a sergeant of Juniper's, and we get a little bit of information about her that she's from Thalassina. And that's Kat lists that as one of the three great cities of the Empire, along with Otter and Foramen. And I, I don't know. Obviously, three very important cities, three big ones. We hear about them frequently. Am I wrong in feeling that it's odd that Wolof is not included in the great cities of the Empire? It it feels like it, is that just because of our our good friend Eris that I'm biased towards Wolof, or is there? Am I wrong in remembering it being like astoundingly wealthy by even by praise standards? So here's the thing, I think. Praise is wealthy. They're, it's made of gold for some reason. But Thalassina, the trade center of the empire, that's the port city. That is Hamburg of the empire. Irreplaceable, one of kind. Otter, governmental center and center of military power. You're not going to argue that that anything but the center of the empire. Foramen, the goblin forges, the or the imperial forges, and I think that's a 
primary point of contact with the goblins, which are a cornerstone of Precy power. Meanwhile, Wolof sits on a vast and unspeakable vault of ancient horrors, is awash in endless currents of magical atrocity, knows some of the great and wretched secrets which no mortal ought to know. All I'm hearing here is it's kind of like a bunch of the other cities, but more. All the the other three, the three great cities, are special. Wolof's just a whole lot. And a lot of that, but it's just a whole lot. That's my suspicion. Get behind that. Fair enough. It it just, after knowing how important Wolof is to the story, it was odd to have three cities listed and it not be among them. But, oh, yeah. I mean, Catherine goes through all of the hells in Wolof. All 70,000 of them, I guess, if you're from Thalassina. 70,000 hells? Their prisoner says this. Who in the 70,000 hells are you? And we get some, it's a weird Thalassina thing. Is that, that is <laughs> such a large and specific number and not the kind of number that often, for Westerners at least, for people who, the American, European area, 77 is leans towards a, holy number sometimes but it's it's i don't know it's such a odd number for me <laughs> uh good for them i guess to just have this random bit of religious theory that's or reality theory that's just a little off from everybody else in such a weird way we've said it before i'm sure we'll say it again i'm sure i'm about to say there is no doubt the religious dimension of the guide for fascinating to me there is pretty concrete evidence of the gods whatever they may be there are forces that answer to supplication and seem to fill the niche outlined for them in theologies sometimes they're observed differently oh the gods below oh the gobbler yeah we can you know whatever we're all serving the same dark forces are out there it is a very syncretic approach to perhaps not an ineffable, but an uneft religion. And the number of hells is part of this. I don't know why you can't just go to Wakesa and have him, you know, do a count, look through his Infernoscope or whatever. His Infernoscope, huh? At least one re- listener gets the reference. I imagine so. It's nifty. There is syncretism in a more, this is a misuse of the word, but a syncretism in a more scientifically testable theological landscape. Yeah, I, things always get a little weird when the majority of people roughly agree on the basics and then just take sides, for sure. But, you know, that's also kind of just a fantasy standby, kind of how fantasy settings often work. So playing around with that in the in Kalerni and the Guideverse makes sense and you know, just one of the expectations built into the genre, which means it, you know, it kind of has to be here. But these hallucinations are tough folks. This sergeant has been captured, is hailed by the enemy, and has full confidence in her captain, considering she's a hellhound, correct? And effectively laughs in the face of her captors. Makes sense from her perspective, to be clear. But as a reader, there are two parts to this that are great. She's, uh, we've got rat face, we've got all of your mages, surrender so we can go home. First of all, she's saying this to the only named on the field, which is already getting things a little dicey. Again, she doesn't know, so it's fine. But second, imagine we skip forward a, a year, a couple years, and just anybody saying this to Catherine Foundling. It's so excellent to see these humble beginnings where people just insult her, which they do always, but insult her not because they're trying to get a rise out of her because they hate her or whatever, but just because they think she's weak and powerless and can't do anything. Hey, just give up. You can't win this. It's over. There's no <laughs> there's no awareness of who she's talking to. And it's it's fun. But Kat doesn't think it's quite so fun. And so the sergeant doesn't have fun. Well, not the captured sergeant. To quote Sergeant Hockram, I said, hit her. Sergeant Hockram did. Is this the first confirmed on-screen kill by 
our beloved right-hand man. I'm sorry, that's insensitive. Yeah, that was rough. Is this the first confirmed on-screen kill? No, uh, apparently the sergeant survives. But, oof, how many people can say they survived a hit from sergeant? From, really, none of his epithets apply yet, do they? Not really. He's lucky, is what I'm saying. Uh, I don't know. You're saying how many people survived a hit from Hawkroom? Listen, I don't want to get weird here, but Hawkroom... Point taken. <laughs> I I imagine Hawkroom's uh, struck a number of people in a way that left them less than dead. More than dead? Whichever one's better. Readers, if you have any fanfictions you recommend for my delightful co-host on the subject, please send them in to thelongprice at gmail.com. He will read all of them. No, hold on. And Listen, I want you to be aware that you just asked people who read a web serial if they have fanfic recommendations. <sighs> for you, specifically. Yep, for me, specifically. Um, he will read them, do we and need he to... will release full reviews. Yeah, is there like a, a premium email storage we can pay for because i have a feeling our inbox is uh about to become non-functional i think you just don't appreciate art yep that's what it is speaking of art uh robber draws us a map of spite valley well a map is a strong word apparently um he's maybe not the most gifted of artists but you take that back uh no but cat compares it to a Halike mural. One, has the orphan from Lore seen Halike murals before? Maybe, I mean, I guess Imperial Education. There's probably an artist. She entered the palace in Lore. She did acknowledge the marble nudes in the Free City style. She had a good education. Regardless, that was just a passing curiosity. But I have a passing curiosity. I wonder what Helike murals are what makes them look like a valley drawn in dirt. I feel like she's insulting Helike, maybe? Looking up ancient Greek murals. The ancient Greek works that I would be most swift to associate with the free cities, given that they're ancient Greece, are really pottery glazing stuff for mosaics or statues. I don't know much in the way of murals, but I am no art historian. Though I've spoken the, to a number this past week. The only like famous ancient Greek mural I can think of is the Alexander charging across the battlefield one. And that doesn't really look like somebody drawing in dirt. It just looks like a mural. Though I am no, I don't know, what would you call a historian of antique time? Someone who gets into the classic stuff. A Greekographer? Yep, that's it. I am no Greekographer. But... Is the likely, if any, but the likely real-world analog here, I know, we're on treacherous ground, but if we had a real-world analog, which I know is not the best way to go about the guide, but this is Sparta, right? More than anywhere else? Probably. They're not Athens, and all of the other ones are not protagonist city-states. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the significant population of slaves leans me towards Stygia a little bit for, for Sparta, but arming the slaves also swings it the other way. So I, I don't know. Pro- probably it's, it's Sparta. It's, it's Thebes. It's the, this is Sparta. Yeah. It's, this is Sparta. And you know, it's the, it's the warlocks warlike city States. Where to really go with this. I don't know if Sparta did much in the way of art, but they did. Well, they, and, We'll probably maybe maybe we'll uh, when Halike is on screen more. We'll uh, keep our eyes peeled for the murals that will definitely come up. Maybe actually, they during the series of interludes that where we see about the big war going on uh, over in the free cities. There's quite a bit of time spent in various palaces and rich people houses. So very the rise of Theodosian, right? The right, exactly. Current Theodosian. We very well could get some glimpses into uh yeah some glimpses into some some halike art we'll have to see and by a meandering path we have gotten to a conclusion but some things are with us eternally catherine expresses concern that if they attack a second time in daylight they may get followed back to camp the fear here being not total destruction but doom 
If even a single tenth found their camp, she thinks, then that was it for the wounded and the handful of rations they'd managed to salvage. An empty stomach wasn't the kind of enemy you could put down with a sword. First of all, she is thinking strategically in stressful circumstances in ways I don't think I would in her place. And I think Learn did a lot for her. But more importantly, this is a theme that persists until the end. Hunger is never the main thrust of adventure until true starvation in the kingdom of the dead. But hunger compels, informs, and aggravates so much of the story. Why did the conquest happen the way it did? Hunger. Why is the relationship between the two kingdoms here, or the kingdom and the empire, as it is? Hunger. Why does the legion under Black, trapped in the Principate, have some of the strictures and difficulties it does? Hunger. Why is Prosser so fragile in the face of the increasing pressures of the war? Hunger. Why is Hassenbach so cool? The chain of hunger. Everything in the story constantly goes back to hunger. And it took Catherine 18 chapters to get there. Good job. That, that's not sarcasm either. 18 chapters is a small piece. I, I commend her. I, I mean, the, the hunger aspect is, is great. I mean, just looking at this, a huge portion of this series is taking place on some form, in some form of military campaign. The vast majority, I would say, is cat leading or at least involved in some campaign or other, uh, you know, crusades or conquests or fighting fairies. Regardless, uh, supplies, food, that kind of determines how campaigns work. It's the first step and in many cases the only step in determining is a campaign possible? Is a campaign winnable? Is it time to be done with this campaign? Having it be a repeated focus, a, a motif of of Kat's strategic planning, it makes perfect sense. And it really, in a world where people can earn titles that give them supernatural power and also there are wizards, it really grounds the story. And I really appreciate that. If hunger is a grounding point for the story, that means a secondary point of Tell me about teeth. <laughs> I was so excited for where that was going. Yeah, we get a a a, we, <laughs> a conversation where uh, we find out why uh, Knock and Robber are not the closest of friends. They're both interested in Pickler. Sure. Cat is weirded out by this because she didn't know orcs could be attracted to goblins in that way. Okay, Cat, can we leave this weird racism at home? Let people love who they love. Like this is so weird that <laughs> it's it's such a such a moment for Cat to be like her issue here is whoa orcs can like goblins grow up Cat. But this is followed up with uh, <laughs> Hawkram admitting that Pickler has a nice set of teeth and not just like they're not interested in dental hygiene or dentistry here. This is this is like a a. You know, I was going to call it a fetish thing, but I don't think that actually applies because I think it's actually a primary trait for orcs. So it's just an orc thing, and Kat doesn't believe it at first. And Hawkram comes back with, why do you think no one's interested in humans? You've all got cow teeth. Hawkram is helping Kat out a little bit. <laughs> she is taken aback by his by his explanation and says something that's a little rude, you know, like, oh, there's no way you're actually interested in that. And he just obliterates her, absolutely roasts her with the cow teeth. She deserves it, absolutely. But it's it's fantastic that orcs and goblins are all interested in what's going on with the teeth, and that's why humans are bad, because their teeth are the wrong shape. He attains his name in much less than a book, and he retains that name for nearly the entire series. While with this name that he has at the very cusp of book two, he takes on a number of demons and, through extreme magical intervention, manages to survive. Obliterating Catherine Foundling. Yeah, he can do that. Very fair. Very fair. 
in talking about the the way that all of all of Hockram's accomplishments and what he what he does at Cat's side or in front of Cat or behind Cat when she's not looking because he is just that kind of person, just accomplishing great feats while Cat does her quote unquote diplomacy and quote unquote miracles. It's also worth keeping in mind the things that stick with us with for Cat for the rest of the the books, such as finger clenching. Just noting, we've got another one here uh, when she's looking at the uh, the prisoner camp. So I'm adding that to our tally. Prisoner camp, which I think would make Black proud. When Catherine wonders if they could break through the walls, her sergeant, Hakram, grimaces, not without a battering ram. They'll have put a buttresses on the other side to hold it up. It's in the manual. And obviously, we know, we see later, flaws with this kind of standardization. The legions do things a certain way, and outside of commander creativities, continue to do things in a certain way. The camps are laid out in a certain way. The tactics are a certain type. The magic used is a certain variety. And that is, of course, a weak point, but the standardization proves to be one of the more effective levers with which Black moves the world. And just being able to look at some fortifications and say, yes, this is how they are, because it's in the manual. I think that that's already something to make him proud. And the fact that that defeats the plan, it's not, well, it's in the manual, so we know how to get around it, but rather, no, 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 they did it right. We're not going to be able to just break down the fortifications. Good job with that manual, Black. Congrats. Oh, yeah. The standardization of, a, of an armed force is fantastic if it's, you know, a good standard. And this is a standard created by Black, probably at, in this part of the manual, alongside goblin engineers. It's, it's going to be good. It's going to be very good. Even if, as we see somewhere around here, maybe just before or just after, the Hellhound only has the second best sappers when it comes to putting up fortifications in, in the, the War College. You said correctly, because his team, though in the lowest ranked company, knows the most important strategy and has the leadership that will allow them to do what must be done. When it becomes clear that it's time for the sappers to come out, he asks Lieutenant Callow, we finally get to play with the fireworks then? And her reply, I think here, winning forever, Robert's heart. Hit them with all you've got, Sergeant. Which he fails to do. They retain some smokers after that. But those uh, <clears throat> hussers and brightsticks are coming out. They are, and I look forward to, to talking about them as we start seeing them uh, and what they actually do, because it, it's interesting to talk about them now and what they're capable of compared to the full-on like battlefield versions that we see later on. Because the, the distinction is noticeable, even if the training ones are absolutely horrid. Horrid? They're nasty works in themselves. But I want to just focus for a second on something that is super nasty. But has become such a trope, I think we often don't give it the appreciation it deserves. They come upon the fortification, they need to go in, they've got to take out the guards, so typical stuff, whatever, yeah. They send someone in, for a moment it looks like the sentry might hear him, but then the volunteer unsheathed his sword and hit the guard in the back of the head with the pommel. The first company sentry crumpled to the ground without, crumpled to the ground without a dull thump, and with the peremptory hand gesture... I got my soldiers moving. Um, so if you get hit in the head and you turn off for a little while, you got brain damage. Yeah, that's permanent brain damage. That's that's just an oof. Yep. This guy's uh this this guard that was hit, I mean, we're talking like American football levels of brain damage. This is the back of the head with a piece of metal. The guy's not doing well. Again, I have not taken biology. But I suspect it would have been better for the guard to have been choked out into unconsciousness than to have been bopped into it. That's just... That's a skull fracture, isn't it? That's gotta be. I mean, yeah. And also, if I recall correctly, if you are knocked out for any reason, it's typically a, a situation where it's either momentarily, because it's more... It's just a, you're stunned. Or it's long-term, because again, your brain is damaged. I have to hope... And we'll see next chapter, actually, how concerned people are with near-lethal things in this war game. But I have to hope that a little brain bruising is something that healers can fix up. 
maybe you know you fix a broken ankle you fix a brain maybe hope we hope this isn't a panacea situation where brains are off limits remind me this chapter i've given medical advice mm-hmm. dietary advice I, yes have i given any musical recommendations yet recommendations i don't believe so for more on the subject of brain injury Dear listeners, I recommend They Might Be Giants' hit song, Contra Coup, which is about the phenomenon of Contra Coup. And it's, I think, the only song I know that contains the word craniosophic. Yeah, that one doesn't come up too often in pop music these days. Following this horrific bout of, of brain damage, um, we, uh, we get Kat hurrying across towards the, uh, the camp in this open field, she says she is running as quickly as she could manage in armor, which means she is she is booking it much faster than she would if she had been, you know, just in her clothing. This, this is this is speedy. She's she's going to catch them off guard. Do not envy her enemies. You have Catherine streaking across the field like a bolt of lightning. And then even there, a dark shape passed me by. Then a second. And with my jaw gaping, I saw Robert and his sappers scuttling across the grass with the unnatural grace of a pack of spiders. Of a what? Pack of spiders. Yeah, a pack of spiders. You know, spiders, famously pack animals. There's, as speaking as somebody with minor arachnophobia, I would say, that's a grouping of three words that haunts me at this point. A pack of spiders. It's horrific. Goblins are just something special. Catherine has been in praise only a few days, but frankly, she already gets it. And in fact, in this self-same metropolitan area, she in fact acquires a spider to keep in her pack. Her night pack. Her, hmm. Remember when that Dread Emperor became a spider queen? I don't know what you're talking about. That feels like, what, was that in one of the little offhanded references to ancient history or something? I don't really pay attention to those. The the goblins rush in and create an opening with their um, training bright sticks and cussers, which are the training versions of um, sharpers. There's the word. Uh, the training version of sharpers. And Robert tosses out the commands for these uh, for these munitions, which are both just Latin words, which is great. Uh, the the call for um, uh, the call for the bright sticks is a word that uh, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce, but uh, I'll, I'll leave it up to my co-host too. I once took an entire couple of days on an online Latin course. It is plainly a bacchinate. A bacchinate, which is a nice word. <laughs> it's apparently, and you, you know, don't quote me on this, this is based on the barest amount of research, but a form of punishment where one is blinded by holding a red-hot metal plate right in front of your eyes for a bit until your eyes don't work anymore. That is such an unnecessary way to generate light. The word, I mean, it's probably more than light. You're probably also doing some heat damage. Regardless, it's such a funky punishment. All right, here's your hot metal. are the people who invented crucifixion, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Geniuses of a certain variety. May we never cross paths. Of a few different varieties, most of them based on hurting other people. Yeah, the so that's that command. We get a little bit of description about the bright sticks. These are stunning. They're really bright. They're you know if you're somebody who has any idea about modern munitions, hey, we're talking like a flashbang situation here. It's really bad for you. It blinds you. It stuns you. It destroys your ears. All of that kind of thing. But it's not quite the real bright sticks which are used in war because those blind permanently i don't know why that is a thing if you're in a battle i feel like blinding someone for a minute a few seconds whatever is probably enough because i I don't know maybe try for taking prisoners you longer blinding is better but a permanent blindness just feels like a spite thing to do okay it's goblin munitions never mind i take back my my astonishment the command for uh, the cussers. Based on my Latin training, spargede, but you could happily anglicize it to sparger. <laughs> he calls out sparger, and that is 
that's that one isn't a specific form of torture it's just a, a word that means to scatter sure for a thing that scatters people call out that that one that's fine well this version is scattering people the pumped up version is scattering parts right this one is this one throws people around hurts people a lot <laughs> sharpers just are grenades <laughs> Uh, but very bad ones, because if I recall correctly, they're used pretty effectively against things like demons and fey. But yeah, the goblin munitions... Do you mean it, demons? It, de- I meant devils. I definitely meant devils. Okay. I don't feel like I was thinking would probably work on demons. You are. Thank you. And after a bacchanating and spargering all over the place, Catherine gets in and meets an absolute no-name trainee, the name that is now being Asaye, who talks like a main character and I don't think we ever see again. Though, please, correct me if I'm wrong. There's a flash of flame that blows away the legionary at the side of Catherine. We never hear about that legionary again. I choose to believe they are simply immolated and destroyed. And then the source of the flame speaks. Guess I still have to work on my aim for that one. A lone legionary in light armor mused as red-orange flames wreathed her hands for a second time. She asks whether... Catherine is the lieutenant in charge of the legionaries breaking in. Catherine acknowledges, introduces herself as Lieutenant Callow, third line of Rat Company. Very polite. Again, like two main characters encountering each other. The Lieutenant Asaye introduces herself, fourth line of First Company. Should have brought a mage, Callow. This is going to get messy. I seem to have misplaced mine, I told her flatly. You wouldn't happen to have some spares in that tent, would you? They... I recognize this chat turns out to be a ploy to allow Asaya time to cast a spell, but I feel like we took a moment of finding a cool character, and they just get thrown away. I now resent Catherine the way I resent every unnamed tabletop RPG player I have ever GM'd for. Thank you. I really don't want to get copyright striked out of existence. According to one article I read, apparently Wizards accidentally made it so that we can say be and mind flare. And by wizards, you mean the magicians out west? Yeah, you know, by the ocean. Right. But speaking of m- ma- magicians, I guess, Asaye throws actually some very good advice to Kat. You know, she's doesn't matter. She's out of the story here. But here's a tip, though, rookie. Don't banter with mages when they're buying time to cast. Obviously, Kat knows this was going on. She's got her own plan. We see that in just a minute. But pretty... Pretty solid advice, and also the flip side of that, Kat uses a number of times where she banters while she's creating a minor miracle out of the night or something like that. So, you know, nice job, Asaya. Advice ain't the only thing Asaya is throwing. That fireball comes whipping at Catherine, hitting hard. It does, and uh, I'm just going to read the chunk of text here that describes how it's affects Catherine because throwing fireballs is like the number one use of mages in the legions of terror it's how they are used on the battlefield it's it was determined to be the effective tactic which we get into later there's a lot of discussion on this when it is first seen in an actual battlefield and so we'll we'll get more on that but uh this is the most description i think we get of the fireballs affecting someone individually and so i think it's worth knowing what we're dealing with when fireballs are tossed out later The impact nearly blew me off my feet, but I gripped my teeth and pushed through the flames, closing the distance, separating me from the gaping lieutenant. There was no way I was taking another one of those, so I struck the girl on the temple with the flat of my short sword before she could summon up to something more vicious. Before Asai even hit the ground, I dropped my shield and blade with a curse to put out the flames on my shoulder pads, doing the best to ignore the fact that I was letting out smoke like a small chimney. So there's a, a few interesting things in here. Uh, the fireballs have impact, they have force. They're not just flame, because flame doesn't have mass, really, to speak of. So there's a magical oomph behind it. Good to know. Makes sense why that would be, why they'd be so useful in a military situation. You're disrupting a formation, which is mainly what you want with ranged weaponry. Perfect. It also seems like the fire isn't even the flame part isn't exactly the fire that we're familiar with. If this is a big enough fire that she has to push through the flames, walking through that tends to walking through a fire that big tends to kill the human. And Cat comes out of it with 
Citation needed. Okay, fair enough. Kat comes out of that with a little bit of flame on her shoulder pads. She's not worried about having lost all of her hair. Her lungs aren't scorched. But things are lit on fire. There's impact. There's force. It mostly seems like they're a disrupting tool. They're not meant to be lethal necessarily, maybe against unarmored opponents or something like that. But it's interesting. It's it's good to keep in mind what it means when lines of mages are hurling fireballs at the enemy. They're not huge bundles of force and flame. It's uh, it's nice to have a, a description because later on in the story, I recall as we're getting deeper and deeper into it, they'd be talking about throwing fireballs and I how effective are these? Are we thinking massive explosions of flame? Is this mostly a force thing? Yeah, it's good to have a, a, a little a description here to fall back on. You know, I have to congratulate you on picking up on that, noting that for us. Though, it's not hard to pick up on the keynotes of some people, I have to say. Right. We we get Robber showing up, and Kat describes him as a yellow-eyed pyromaniac. And initially, I was going to comment on she met him a few hours ago. How does she know? Uh, but it's Robber. I think if she wasn't aware of that aspect of who he is as a person at this point, she's just not paying attention. He's He definitely is pretty upfront about who he is, and I really respect that about Robber. This is when Robber asks whether what she did was very brave or very stupid, and Hakram suggests that maybe it's true that she castrated an ogre in single combat and she goes to shoot them both a dirty look perhaps our first instance of the motif of her being constantly betrayed by her underlings and in return they adopt the most innocent expressions they could which given that robber was a yellow-eyed pyromaniac and hakram had a set of teeth that would make most wolves balk would have gotten them instantly convicted in any court of law and i don't know the callowan court system I can say that Catherine's analysis here is putting the judicial in prejudicial. Yellow-eyed pyromaniac? Hakram's teeth? Catherine is essentializing racial characteristics as criminal, and frankly, I'm done with that. I, I want to commend you on putting the judicial in prejudicial, by the way. Very good. I cannot be the first to come up with it, but today, I feel like I made it up. So I probably stole it from your favorite work of art. Please write in to reprimand me. Engagement is good for the algorithm. And we are nothing if not slaves to the algorithm. Loyal worshippers thereof. I'm curious. I have one question for you, a simple one. And I guess I have one How does magic work? Mostly through math, I think. Okay, more specifically, they get two mages and a sergeant from this. All of them nameless and forever unimportant. Let's not worry about it. But both of the mages knew how to heal. Great. We know healing is the domain of mages and that they know how to heal. Cool. Apparently not all mages even here can heal, so it's good to know that they can. What's like the order of magic? Like I teach math and we teach place value before we teach decimals. Or I teach German and we teach the nominative case before the dative case. And in between we do the accusative case. There's a typical order to learning things, even though sometimes you get bits and pieces out of order, depending on how you approach things. What What's the mage curriculum like? I'm, I'm just curious. You don't have an answer. Nobody does. Write in if you have it. E.E., e., write a whole mage curriculum and send it personally to me. I'd appreciate it. I think from this, we can assume mage curriculum in the college begins with throw fireball, because that seems to be their base function. If... If there's a question mark on whether a mage knows how to heal, that means that comes later because a mage has to have some function or they wouldn't be a mage in the legions. They would be a you know a legionary who can do magic. So I think fireball has to be step one. If if healing isn't step one, then fireball does because those seem like the two main things that mages do. Maybe scrying, actually. That's up there. But yeah. I, it, there's so many parts of this. Most of our exposure to magic comes from, <laughs> you know, people like Z's or uh, or Ubwa or even Nessie. We're getting these. <laughs> we get the highest level view of what magic is capable of at the extremes. So yeah, wondering what no name 
cadet who can maybe throw a fireball can do. I, I'm I'm curious as well. Worth noting also that that really does put us in a weird corner of magic. We see other varieties. It's not like Jaquanite magic is unseen in the novel, but it's all Trismegistin. It's Trismegistin all the way down. Pretty much, yeah. Which, you know, shame. Who well, even sh- was this Trismegistus guy? <laughs> I probably doesn't come up. Okay, don't bite my head off. I'm extremely sorry. But then the bird and uh, uh, with the, yeah very clever <laughs> sorry uh we don't want to have any spoilers in here like how the apprentice turns into hierophant and then bites the head off of nessie in order to become a god we definitely don't want spoilers like that yeah whenever we talk about spoilers i want to have a snape kills dumbledore joke but i just don't want to invoke it's a shame that that's the quintessential spoiler just do i mean darth vader luke skywalker is probably i almost as well-known one that is also older and safer. Like, Star Wars isn't perfect, but... But no spoilers here. I will not tell you how Black is actually Catherine's father, but not, like, biological or anything. That'd be weird. Yeah, just, like, the normal kind of father. Speaking of important relationships in a young girl's life, here we have the first real exchange between Catherine and, all jokes aside, Sergeant Killian. And I have to say... Romance is not in the air. We have, first, they moved some of us earlier today, Sergeant Killian said, to the fort, I think. I don't recall hearing anything about another prisoner camp. We used to be a full line of prisoners. And Catherine said, I was afraid you'd say that, I muttered. Okay, great. Got the business out of the way. And then, next time Killian speaks, she clears her throat. No disrespect intended, sir. She said, meeting my eyes squarely. But why are you in command? You've been in the company for barely two days, if I'm not mistaken. And they explain everything, and it's cool. But that's it? It's now, explained? Hold and on. And Killian says, okay, I'm holding. I hold. You, you say romance is not in the air. Tell me if you can, and this is a sincere challenge. What is more romantic than prolonged eye contact and negging? This was love at first sight, and I will not hear otherwise. I think a root canal but that's a bit personal for a first date yeah digging all up in there but then everything is set chapter name see where i'm going there everything is set up they set up a full watch they've kicked the hornet's nest it's all going down tomorrow can i mention that i forgot there were two war games because we got into this mess and i was thinking of the second mess and they were talking about only one other company, and it's waiting for the others to be mentioned. Because they have a battle royale coming up, right? Yeah, I I remembered there being a couple of war games. I thought this was like the last one. I thought it built up to this one. So, you know, these early chapters are going to be a little rough when it comes to remembering exactly the order of things. That's just how it works. It is as they say, life. And you know what else they say about life? It always ends. I was just going to say it's short. That is grim. In that way, this podcast is much like life. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... Dirt Mounds. Hellhound. And One Rounds. No, at at the end of the chapter, Kat says they've already got... So the first round was the Watchtower. This was the second round. We're at round three. Wait in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Waltz for a Cat by Monday Hopes. Bleeping effect for the properties of the litigious ocean magicians was Bleep by Joseph Sound. Flaming Crackles were Bonfire HQ by Tasha73. The Big Boom was HQ Explosion by Quaker540. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music slash, and the sound effects by pixabay.com slash sound effects. 
Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks, as always, to our patron and liege, always a claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 17, Match. You'd be the you'd be the lieutenant in charge of that lot then. You'd be the lieutenant in charge of that lot then. You'd be the lieutenant in charge of that lot then. Eh. You'd be the lieutenant in charge of that lot then. You'd be the lieutenant in charge of that lot then. I'm with you. I'm I'm over here trying to figure out <laughs> where the emphasis goes in this sentence to make it sound like something a human would say. Whether she asks whether Catherine is the lieutenant in charge of the legionaries breaking in.